So take your Bible and find Luke chapter 15 as we continue in this series entitled Jesus Parables, Wisdom for Life, Luke 15 beginning in verse 11. We come today to a parable. It's one parable, but there's three parts. It's about a lost son, a loving father, and another son. The first son we call the prodigal. We hear much about him, and he's often misunderstood. The second son is the older son. We hear little about him, and he's usually misunderstood. But between the two, we have a representation of the world, maybe ourselves, and sandwiched in between is an extraordinary picture of a loving, merciful, and grace-extending God. We'll only get to the first son of the father today, We'll get to the second son and the father two weeks from now, but let's read about the first son and the father beginning in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, and he, referring to Jesus, and he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine." And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but here I am dying with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Context is king in biblical interpretation. So look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Every word in that verse is important. Tax collectors were extortionists who collected Rome's taxes from the Jews and whatever else they wanted for themselves in whatever manner they could collect the taxes. Based on the context, the word sinners may refer to people invited in the wedding banquet that Jesus held. It's a, it's a story. In chapter 14, verse 21, those people were poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Both groups came to listen to him. In the parable of the soils, Jesus said, be careful how you listen. Remember that Jesus spoke in parables to reveal truth to those who want it and to conceal truth to the prideful and self-righteous who don't want it. So the question is, how do you and I listen? Be careful 
how you listen. That refers to our heart more than our ears. So we have a heart to hear God's word and assimilate it and then obey it. Let it sink into our heart and life and let it change our life. Do we have a heart to be rebuked or encouraged? Do we have a heart to be convicted or delighted by it? Be careful how you listen. Eternity can hinge on your life's response to God's word. Tax collectors and sinners, people who were looked down upon in that society, came to listen. Verse 2, the Pharisees did not come to listen. They came to critique and criticize they grumbled about Jesus eating with sinners. Now, eating with someone in that day meant you accepted them. It was called table fellowship. The Pharisees saw Jesus as having fellowship, as accepting people that they viewed as unclean sinners. So they condemned him. They hated him. They did not come to listen. Two groups. One came to listen. The other did not so, in verse 3, Jesus told these groups a parable. It's about a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep in search of one. The Pharisees would consider one sheep expendable. That's just the cost of doing business. But the shepherd retrieves even one sheep because that sheep is lost. And when he finds him, he gladly puts that weary sheep on his shoulders and brings him home. And that shepherd who pictures Jesus gathered his friends and neighbors and said, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Then he tells a parable about a woman and a lost coin. She lit a lamp so she'd have light. And she carefully searched until she found that coin. And when she found it, she said, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin that I lost. Then in verse 10, Jesus said, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, one sinner who repents. Jesus finds and receives and loves lost sinners, and when that happens, heaven rejoices. That's the theme of this chapter. So we're talking about the extraordinary love and grace of God, and I wonder this morning, how many of you need to hear that you are loved, that you are valuable, that you have worth? No matter where you've been in life, Jesus loves you. If you're part of this church, Nathan and Kirk and Jennifer and myself, we love you. We're proud of you for who you're becoming. We, I see so many people in this church growing spiritually. It is, it is an exciting time to be part of West Haven. You are a Jesus-loving people. But any love we have for you or any love we have for one another or any love you experience in your family is no comparison to the love God has for you. And we'll see this love as we go through these verses over this sermon and two weeks from now. First, let's look at a lost man living loosely. A lost man living loosely. Verse 12 introduces us to the youngest son. He's the one known as the prodigal. And he makes what we call a shameless request in verse 12. A shameless request. He says, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, there are two key words here, estate and assets. 
The word estate, that's the only place in the New Testament this word appears. It means goods or property. So when he says, give me the share of the estate, he knows that the estate is illiquid. It's not in cash. It was an agrarian culture then, so the wealth is in acreage and livestock and crops. The son wants the father to liquidate several of the family assets, and he's saying, sell some of what you have, do it now, and give it to me. Now, God established inheritance laws in the Old Testament to provide for a family and to keep the family together. The older son got two-thirds. He could use it for himself, but he was also supposed to use it to provide for other family members if necessary. Verse 11 says there were two brothers. So the youngest is saying, liquidate a third of your assets and give it to me. And that brings in the other key word, asset. It can be translated as substance. It's a word which means biological life. It's bios, B-I-O-S. It also means that by which life is sustained. Sustained, excuse me. So that land and that livestock that have sustained that family for who knows how many generations? The son doesn't care. It's all about him. And on top of all this, the Jewish culture then was one of honor and shame. The patriarch of the family was the ruler. He was supposed to be shown respect and deference. And of course, you didn't receive your inheritance until the father died. So the son is saying this, I want what you can give but I don't want you. I want what you can give, but I don't want you. That shameless request is a picture of the way every one of us has treated God. He created us. He's given us what we need. He knows what is good for us and gives him glory, and we've sinned against him. And even as a Christian, is it possible today that your words and your ways say to God, I'm interested in you, excuse me, I'm interested in what you can give, but I'm not interested in you? It's a shameful request. But number two is a sinful rebellion. Verse 12 says the father divided the estate. And verse 13 says not many days the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into the distant country. Now, remember who's listening to this. The Pharisees would have been scandalized at this point. In that culture, a Jewish father would slap the son, and then he would disinherit him on the spot. But this father gave the son exactly what he wanted. Now, I think there's a biblical principle to pick up here. When you're not very interested in God, but you are interested in what he can give, one of the worst things that can befall you is when God gives you what you want. Numbers chapter 11, God rescued the Israelites from a life of slavery, but they complained constantly. They wanted meat to eat, so God gave them what they wanted, and a plague broke out among them. Balaam was offered money to curse Israel, and he kept asking God if it was okay, like a child nagging a father. He finally succeeded in harming Israel, and his end thereof was death. Later, Israel wanted a king like the pagan nations around him. They had to have a king. So God sent Samuel to warn them about extreme taxes and conscription and land confiscation. 
He said, you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the Bible says, nevertheless, the people refused to listen. They refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. They refused to listen. Take care how you listen. They got what they wanted, and they got one oppressive monarchy after another. When you're not very interested in God, but you are interested in what he can give, one of the worst things that can befall you is when God gives you what you want. On an eternal basis, one of the worst things that can happen to a person and their family can be success or popularity. Wealth and money, that's a dangerous one. Time. The son got what he wanted, and he traveled to a distant country, a Gentile country. The King James Version calls it a far country, a country where belief about the Father and faith in the Father they have no influence. The Father's name isn't even mentioned. No more of his annoying presence. So then comes the inevitable. Verse 13, it says, He squandered his estate with loose living generation after generation has gone before us giving money blood sweat and tears to propagate the faith as i said earlier the church is the only institution on earth created by god and ordained to spread the gospel and jesus is the only way to god but in every generation every generation mankind thinks his day is unprecedented it's a more educated day. It's a more enlightened day. It's a day when you no longer need an ancient Savior and a boring church, so it's time to be free and pursue what I want. And it may take years, but what mankind finds is a pot of misery at the end of his rainbow. And sinful rebellion is always followed by a severe result. Look again at verse 14. It says, he spent everything. The so-called school of hard knocks is a great teacher, but we aren't always great learners. Verse 30 says he was involved with prostitutes. Now, the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s was, the, was a terrible rebellion that created great damage. But today, we've crossed unthinkable boundaries. And in its wake, we've created loneliness, broken hearts, troubled children, persistent diseases, and rampant divorce. Paul said, flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is like drinking poison. <clears throat> sin, any kind of sin, has severe results. And verse 14 says a severe famine struck that country and he began to be impoverished. And verse 16 says no one would give him anything. It's amazing how so-called friends will run into drunkenness and dissipation with you. But when trouble comes, man, you're on your own. So he does something unthinkable for a Jewish boy. Verse 15, he started feeding hogs. He went to the far country because he wanted freedom. Now he's a slave to pain and privation and loneliness. And verse 16 says he would have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Most of you know that hogs will eat anything. 
I went to church with a guy who was a hog farmer, and I asked him if he ate pork. He said, I'd never eat pork. Do you see what those things eat? <laughs> These pods were, they were from a carob tree. They look like giant, thick string beans. So this guy is as down and out as you can get. And one stereotype of Christianity is that it's just for the down and outers. But for the wealthy or the well-educated or those who lack serious problems, they don't need repentance. They don't need a, a church. God somehow views them differently than those down and outers. That is the delusion of wealth and achievement. In the parable of the soils, Jesus warned about the deceitfulness of riches. Prosperity can pull a thick veil over human beings' eyes. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus warned the wealthy church at Laodicea about this very thing. He said, because you say, I am rich and wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, lost. It is at this point that the story turns because there's a shameful request which is followed by a sinful rebellion which is followed by a severe result but we see here sincere repentance verse 17 it says he came to his senses he came to his senses when it's your desire to go to Jesus you've come to your senses but there's a crucial question that we need to ask here what was his biggest problem? Was it that he engaged in loose living? Was it that he wasted all that he had? Well, what about insulting the father? That's pretty serious. Let's ask it a different way. What if he went to the far country and engaged in industrious living? What if instead of wasting all that he had, that he was a good steward of all that he had? That he made something out of himself, that he got a good job, that he rose up through the ranks of a large company? Would that make the story different? Would the father then be pleased with him and say, you know, he left on bad terms, but man, he got his life straightened out and I'm so happy about that? The problem was not his outward behavior. The problem was his heart rebellion against the father. The point of this story is not the prodigal made a mess of his life, and if you don't get your act together, you're going to make a mess of your life and be broken hungry too. That is not the point. The point is that he had a rebellious heart against the father, and he realizes his only hope is the one he rebelled against. Now, you may have a rebellious heart against Jesus right now. You, maybe you didn't even come here of your own will this morning. I want you to know something. Jesus did not come to condemn you. He did not come to condemn your immorality. He came to save you from self-righteousness and give you the righteousness that he purchased by his death on the cross. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the so-called gutter or the boardroom or anywhere in between. Verse 17, this prodigal said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? This is repentance taking another step, and it is here we learn more about the Father. His hired workers have more than enough food. Hired workers then, another way we could put it is they were day laborers. 
They had it worse than slaves. In terms of the economic ladder, they were the bottom. That's why Deuteronomy 24 says, Do not oppress a hired servant. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. If he didn't get paid that day, he didn't eat, and neither did his family. Yet this father is so generous, he feeds them more than enough. So this son remembers how his father treats utterly powerless people. And look at verse 18. He said, I'll get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Make me a day laborer. He's repenting, but he has two wrong assumptions. First, he thinks he can gain his father's approval by works. He says, make me as one of your hired men. I'll work to get in his good graces. And sadly, number two, he assumes he'll never be able to be his father's child, just a hired man. Now, why does he think this way? It's because in that culture, no Jewish father would ever take back a rebel like him. I mean, he disinherited him, and he's no longer part of the family. Well, he's about to get a beautiful surprise, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I mean, he fully receives him. This passage negates any belief that says Jesus can't or won't forgive any kind of sin. It destroys the notion that you have to get your life cleaned up before you get saved and come to Jesus. It corrects the misunderstanding that when you do repent, he only takes you in grudgingly and you better prove yourself quickly. God joyously receives repentant sinners as his loved children. He embraces you and loves you as if you never sinned. But what about your life before Christ? All that rebellion. What about your antics in the far country? I had a 45th class reunion I was unable to go to, but I talked to one of my classmates, and he, you know, his mind is blown that I'm a pastor. And he, he said, what about? And I said, hey, you can bring it up all you want. Jesus forgave my sins. So the way you shamefully scorned him in the far country the gospel is not about what you've done in the past. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. He died and rose again to take away all of your sin. So what does this process of repentance look like? Well, we're going to go through this very quickly. I want you to see four steps that occur. First is conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit bringing guilt to bear on the human heart. Conviction comes to the unsaved by awakening this sense of Guilt and shame before God. The Bible says he convicts men of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And I will never forget, I will never forget the way he awakened me to my sin. And sin that I'd committed just one month earlier, suddenly I had this tremendous sense of guilt over it. And I knew, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that if I died, my destination would be hell. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's not only conviction, there's contrition. And that's the humility that comes when we recognize the depth of our sin. A contrite person is not angry or bitter against God, ever. 
For example, the prodigal could say to the father, well, all these things happen to me, but why did you let me go to the country in the first place? The contrite person says, God, my sin is ever before me. A contrite person takes care how he listens. He has a holy fear of God. Isaiah 66 says, this is the one who I esteem, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And if you want an example of conviction, when you go home today, read Psalm 51. David's repentance after he sinned against God, committing adultery with Bathsheba. That is contrition. But there's not only conviction and contrition, there's also confession. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Confession is agreeing with God about what he calls sin. It's an honest agreement with God about our sin without any excuses. Any excuses. It doesn't redefine sin. It doesn't call sin what our culture calls sin. It doesn't politicize sin. It doesn't rationalize it. It agrees with what the Bible calls sin. He said, I have sinned. And yet there's not just conviction and contrition and confession. There's also the cessation of sin, the stopping of it. It's been rightly said that repentance is not just being broken over your sin. It's being broken from your sin. And repentance means that our affections for Jesus are greater than our affections for cultivating our own sin. Most of our sin occurs because we cultivate it. James 1.14 says each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the cultivation. And it says then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The result of all of this is a picture of saving faith. Now the son's faith is weak and it's a little bit misplaced. He thinks his father will only receive him as a day laborer. But when you were saved, was your faith perfect? And is it perfect today? The most important truth about our faith is not the depth of our faith, although we want a deep faith, because deep faith will anchor you in Jesus through life's storms. The most important aspect of our faith is the object of our faith. It's faith in the biblical Jesus, the Son of the living God, and if your faith has ebbed low today, circumstances have brought you down, folks, take heart because Jesus will not let you go. But there's much talk today about faith. I mean, there's the talk about I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So everyone has faith in something or someone. If you stick the nozzle of a gas pump in your gas tank, you have faith that is pumping gasoline. Unless your faith is solely in the biblical Jesus, it's harmful. It's not Jesus in this. Only faith in the biblical Jesus is saving. There's so much confusion about faith today. It's, it's believable. I can have saving faith, but I believe in psychics or ghosts or mediums or visitations from dead family members. Or that Jesus and Muhammad and all the Hindu gods, they're just different paths to the same place. That's demonic deception. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. Your faith must be in Jesus alone. 
And it's been accurately said that unless Jesus is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So the ongoing challenge to us always is to bring every area of our life under the lordship, the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. He shall have no rivals, no rivals. The son instinctively knew this. He was so surrendered to the father's will that he said, make me as one of your hired men. Not a son, not a slave, the lowest person on the ladder. Some of you here today feel badly about yourself. You may be a senior citizen. You may be a student. You may be a child. You just you don't feel good about what you have or haven't accomplished in life. People have struggles with anxiety and worry and depression. Maybe you're confused or heartbroken or lonely. And all these things have conspired to affect the way you believe Jesus sees you. You believe that if he takes you in, it's like he'll only take me in as one of his hired men. Jesus left the glory and honor of heaven to incarnate himself in human flesh. He exchanged a royal diadem for a crown of thorns. He exchanged praise and honor from angels for the scorn and hatred of men. He shed his royal red blood beneath the cruel cross of Calvary, and he did it to seek and to save that which was lost. Human beings, which includes you. He loves you, and he is the best friend you will ever have. And if you are lost, he will receive you with great joy. We don't have time to unpack this this morning. We will next week, but verse 22. The father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. That would have been the father's robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it, let us eat, and celebrate. The father is filled with compassion. He will give this son all that is his. He fully and freely loves him as if he never sinned. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus forgiving our sins as he brings us into the kingdom. And it's not as if it didn't cost the father. In these verses, the father liquidated a third of his assets. He was publicly embarrassed and didn't do what the culture said he should do. Plus, he suffered the pain of an estranged child. Yet our Heavenly Father suffered much more. Again, as God, He came to earth in human flesh as a baby. He was nailed to a cross as a substitute for you and I. He took God's wrath for our sin upon Himself. Then He died and was buried, and in the best attested to event in human history, He rose three days later, defeating sin and conquering death, and He didn't do that to keep you out of the far country. He did it to bring you into His kingdom. Listen, don't let what I've said in the last few minutes fade into something that you've heard so often that it no longer moves you. He saved us from our sins and eternity in hell, eternal bliss in heaven, not to mention the fact that we can walk through this life with absolute security knowing that Jesus loves us. But maybe today you are in the far country. I've been there, done that. Got the passport, but you want to come to Jesus. Now, how do you do that? Repent. 
Turn away from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And if that's the case, would you let myself or Nathan, Kirk's gone today, but let, let someone near you know because we want to help you take next steps in the Christian life. Or maybe you say, and I was here at one point in my life, maybe you want to have a conversation about that. Then take the initiative right now. We, we can't see what you're thinking, but take look at that QR code in the seat in back of you. That, that'll give you a number of options. Complete that. We will get back to you. And I want to say this, because I've been there, done this. Maybe you have a lot of questions or doubts. You've got some kind of a hang up or roadblock that says you know here's why I don't believe we'd love to have that conversation with you and we'll have that conversation with you with respect and dignity folks there is so much noise out there today social media political strife world tension remember that this world and all of its lust are passing away and so are you. What happens to you eternally is ultimately all that matters. Jesus made provision for you to be in heaven. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle of total surrender. Thank God for his great compassion and mercy. If you've never been saved, don't let this opportunity pass you by. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We recognize your great compassion and love for us. I pray this morning that those who are not saved would, first of all, know that they're not saved and that you would draw them to yourself, that they would put their faith and trust in you and you alone. And for those who are Christians but perhaps have drifted, I pray you would place it in our heart to recognize that Jesus calls us to a life of total surrender, to put our hand to the plow in following him and never look back. So I pray for anyone who recognizes that this morning, that they would turn and get right with God. And Lord Jesus, your word has done that in my life in the past few days. And I thank you for the way you grabbed hold of me and showed me some changes that I need to make. Thank you for the miraculous way that the Holy Spirit and the word of God work in our life. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that it never ends. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.